okay. Some of us don't get bangs. Some of us just dye our hair. Don't be rude. Welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the podcast where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get to know famous people from throughout history. The real famous people. Not the counterfeit famous people that you're used to. Not the whitewashed, the like nitty gritty. Yes, that we do. Well, we will do that potentially this week, assuming by the time we're done recording, we have both power and internet and are not totally blacked out. Major contingency. Yeah. Blacked out meaning not subject to rolling blackouts as opposed to just blackout drunk. I mean, one of those sounds better than the other, <laughs> but only one of them is a very real possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, yeah. It's it's really fucking cold. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the coldest I think I've ever experienced, and I have lived in cold places for years. Yeah, it's not only record cold temperatures here, it's a record cold temperature for Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Yeah. It's record cold in Texas all over. But we made do. You're from New Orleans. Yeah. And so we ordered some beads. Yep. Found a king cake. Watched some parades online. Watched last year's parades online. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The super spreader parades. We almost we almost went there and uh, avoided it because we we're like, this COVID thing seems like it could be legit. Yeah. I mean, there's a fine line between like, let the good times roll and... Let the virus... Spread. Spread. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, it's a fine line, but we walked it hard, brother. <laughs> Frequently, yes. Walked it hard. Um, speaking of viral infections, who's this week's hero? Oh, Wow. Okay. I'm not sure that I would refer to this week's hero as a viral infection, but you know what? Some of her nemesis might, in fact. Okay. So this week's hero is Joan Crawford. What do you know about Joan Crawford? The name sounds familiar, but very little. Uh, I feel like she's like a Hollywood type. She, She is... One of the original Hollywood types, yes. Okay, okay. Uh, that, that we're rapidly approaching <laughs> the limits of what I can tell you. Okay, well, good news is I've got like five pages of details about her life that I am ready to share with you right now. Excellent. Cannot wait. Joan Crawford was born Lucille Faye Lasseur. Side note, occasionally she's referred to as Billy ended up being a nickname. Wow. Those somehow. Are, that's a lot of names and none of them are Joan Crawford. Okay. Well, <laughs> wait till you find out how she got the name Joan Crawford. But okay. we'll start with little Lucy. Got it. Born March 23rd, 19 something. What? <laughs> there is no birth certificate that can be found with her name, the birth date and year. Mm-hmm. So she claims that she was born in 1908 which would have made her sort of like 16, 17 when she entered Hollywood. It's probably more likely that it was like 1904, 1905. So okay. she was a bit older. Got it. Regardless, her birthday is March 23rd, which means that it is time for Audrey's Astrology Corner. Back after quite the hiatus, the people were missing it. You're welcome, folks. <laughs> I did the bare minimum this week and you get to... Reap the fruit of my labor. (laughs) So she's an Aries. As an Aries born on March 23rd, they have a truly passionate and enthusiastic personality. Their friends and family would be the first to attest to their passion. If something strikes their interest or is a challenge that they feel to be worthwhile, there is nothing that can stand in the way of what they wish to accomplish. The energy that they display in their personal matters is appealing to those around them, which explains why they have so many followers. Well, that sounds promising. I guess we'll see. She was born in San Antonio. She was the third and youngest child in her family. Her father was a construction worker. Her mother was originally a homemaker. Uh, They were not a family of means. And uh, they moved very quickly into poverty when her father abandoned the family when Joan was 10 months old. That, that'll do it. 
her mother worked briefly as a laundry woman and ended up marrying again. This time, she married a man who ran the local opera house. It's kind of a a real pivot from construction worker. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Moving on up. No one told Joan that this man that her mother had married was actually her stepfather. She did not know that he was not her biological father. How old is she? So she was 10 months old when her father abandoned her and trigger warning about sexual abuse. She was 11 years old when her stepfather started sexually assaulting her. Yikes. And that is when her brother told her that he's not their biological father, that he's actually their stepfather. When Joan's mother found out that Joan was being sexually assaulted by her stepfather, she did the thing that mothers in the 19-teens did and blamed Joan. So they sent her to a boarding school. Oh, yikes. At some point later in life, Joan would say to an acquaintance who then later reported this, so this is, again, two steps of hearsay, that the sexual assault committed against her by her stepfather was actually consensual and that she in some ways instigated it. But I want to be really fucking clear right now. Yeah, that's... No. Sex with an 11-year-old is rape. Yeah, so there's no... Yeah, the... There, it sounds like there's a lot to unpack there. But yes. no one as an adult, uh, I think, who's done any level of processing is like, oh, as an 11-year-old, I invited this sexual encounter. That's right. not how it works. No. But that is part of the narrative that Joan sort of brings with her throughout her adulthood. After Joan's mother and her first stepfather divorced in 1917, Joan's mother moved the family to Kansas City. At this point, Joan was in her early teens. She attended a private Catholic school in the city, um, and she did so in exchange for working on the grounds. So it's kind of like a work-study exchange for a 13-year-old, I guess. Okay. Um, and the experience was apparently horrible. She experienced a lot of psychological and physical abuse, and she was bullied by other girls on campus. Wait, so you're saying making kids get jobs to pay for their school did not work out for the kids? No, it, it wasn't great for Joan. It wasn't. Uh, but despite that, you know, Joan, who had grown up around vaudeville and performers, who had long wanted to become a dancer, ended up winning a number of local dance competitions around Kansas City. Okay. The first one when she was just 13. But, you know, they moved there. She has got the moves. She is uh, trying to ditch school, so she ends up going yeah. to a bunch of dance competitions. Ditch school slash work. Yes. At some point, it turns out that she doesn't like being beaten for not cleaning the toilets properly, and so she asks to transfer private schools. She ends up with a sponsorship to go to this other more elite private school, blows that pretty quickly because she decides the thing oh, she wants to okay. do is dance. And she does not care about a formal education. So she drops out of school after essentially not going to class and then failing. Got it. Well, didn't wasn't working out for her. Can't say I blame her. No. She knew what she wanted from the from very early in life. Who among us can say that? Yeah, not very many of us. One of the things, one of the places I want to give Joan Crawford a ton of credit is although it often manifests in kind of unhealthy ways that we'll see. She very clearly understood how to get wherever she wanted. Like, sometimes she was obsessive about it, but whatever goal, whatever site she set her eyes on, she made happen for herself, like for and by herself. And this is one of the first instances. So she drops out of school. She moves back to Kansas City. She's She was living just a couple miles away at boarding school, but she moves back. She sort of like tinkers around a few department stores, saving up enough money until she can move to Chicago. And this move to Chicago is where her career really picks up. So she's only like 16 or 17, if you believe yeah. her at this point, I guess. Maybe 18. Yeah. She gets work immediately at a nightclub and in a chorus, which is a bit suspicious considering she is underage. Not sure how she made it into a nightclub, but... Yeah, Whatever. I mean, somehow I'm thinking, like, this would be 1915, 20? Close to 1920, 19, early 1920s. Yeah, somehow I'm imagining 1920s nightclubs were not, like, 
stellar employers <laughs> in terms of their HR departments. No, so labor laws a little loose. I feel like I can believe it, but yeah, not great. Right. By 1925, she is actually a good enough dancer and um, she's charismatic. She's met the right people. She ends up getting a contract with MGM. We've done. We've actually featured a lot of actors, and I don't think we've ever broken this down. You know how actors got roles back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, the golden age of Hollywood? Yeah, so when you say MGM, so this mm-hmm. is one of like the golden age studios. So what they would do, I, I know it's just from researching other podcast episodes, but they would basically sign actors to their studio. Yes. And then they would have like this roster of people, kind of like a basketball team. Yes. And they'd be like, okay, we want to do a romance and a comedy and a drama. Who do we have on the bench? And then they'd just like pick random people from their studio and then they'd put them in. Yes. Which is also, right, because it's not negotiating per picture, it's also one of the things that fostered this really unhealthy power dynamic because Mm -hmm. if you pissed off somebody at the studio or refused to sleep with somebody at the studio, they held your exclusive contract for some period of time and they could just refuse to put you in movies, which would then also mean that you couldn't be in anybody else's movies either. So when you think about actors now, you can essentially think of them as like independent contractors. They have agents who broker for them. They are their own entity in and of themselves. But yes, back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, even late up until the 70s, basically, the studios signed you for a set number of roles or movies or for a set price. And then you would just like work yourself out of those. And they could control everything from like what you ate They could prescribe you a diet. They could tell you who you could Mm -hmm. spend time with, who you could be photographed with. There's like a whole list of things you couldn't do. And if you were caught doing them, there were penalties for it. They had just this absolute control over actors and actresses in ways that studios don't have today. Yeah, well, with the notable exception of the 50-year contract that Bill Murray signed with Sofia Coppola. Is that, than, is that real? No, it's oh. totally bullshit. <laughs> yes, but it seems like it. It seems like they did. I mean, it's possible. That's why I asked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it seems like a bit that he would really, really get into. Yes, it's kind of like uh, Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray and uh, Wes Anderson. Same kind of thing. Absolutely. So over the next three years, it's 1925-ish, over the next three years, she has this number of bit roles, both as a dancer and an actress. This is still during silent films. There are no speaking roles in her first movies. But she gets increasingly frustrated with what she perceives to be this lack of promotion of her talent. She really believes that the studio is like wasting her youth (laughs) because she is a beautiful woman. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of her. She was stunning her entire life. Just absolutely gorgeous. She's like 20 at this point, according to her. But she's, you know, like sort of working her way up the ranks. And before she makes it big, one of the PR people from MGM notices like, oh, this is our next star. But listen, her name, not believable. What was the name again? Lucille Lesser. Yeah, I don't buy it. She needs a new name. Not real. Right. No one, they're like, no one's going to believe that that is her real name. It sounds like a... Jason Sudeikis. Like, come on. (laughs) Right? Like, what? No. So what the studio does, they run this competition and they put it out into the papers and they say anyone who suggests a new name for this beautiful up and coming actress, if you if you suggest a name and we pick it, we will give you one thousand dollars. Fun fact. uh, Just barely beat out the number two Bodie McBoatface. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that You know what? I don't think the public should be allowed to name things in yeah. contemporary times. Generally a bad idea. We've been given too much power yes. at this point. But back then, they actually made some legitimate suggestions. So the first name that was picked was Joan Arden. Come to find out, some other actress had the rights to the name Joan Arden. It I, was that basic. that There was that literally basic, already yeah. a Joan Arden. So the second name... And they didn't know who it was. Joan Arden was out there being basic. Right. People were like, oh, this sounds like a good name. And they're like, uh, there already is one. And it's <laughs> such a bad name, you don't even know she's out there. <laughs> Try again. Right. And so the public was like, what about Crawford? And the studio was like, ding, ding, ding. Love it. That's it. Boom. You're Joan Crawford. And Joan Crawford was like, fuck you. I hate it. It sounds like I'm a crawfish. This is terrible. And that she was like, that's an asset for the name, right? She did not love it. <laughs> she hated it for her, her no entire taste. life. No taste. <laughs> she really hoped that people would call her Joanne Crawford. She thought like if you had that 
that second syllable, it might soften the crawfish component of her name, but the public just went with Joan. So she was Joan Crawford. I don't know if she ever legally changed it, but that is from 1925 until her death, she was Joan Crawford. Wow. Just the fact that they, like, had a contest. I know. And she was fucking stuck with it. (laughs) So she's got this new name. This Hollywood bombshell is born. Everyone at the studio is like, okay, you're great. We'll put you in movies. And she doesn't think that the roles are good enough. So she begins this relentless campaign of self-promotion. Essentially, she was like, wherever the decision makers are, that's where I'm going to be. She would go to events all day, all night, all over Hollywood, just to like mingle with directors in just the studio. Just networking out the wazoo. Yeah, networking, schmoozing, seducing, just mm. like a number of strategies to get her name known. It really works. Um, it's sort of like the shameless influencer of today who's willing to do whatever it takes, like the Logan Paul or whatever. <laughs> no, like, um, oh, what's the hipster grifter? Anna uh, Delfry? What's her, what's her uh, last name? Oh, uh, Anna Delvey? Anna Delvey just got out of jail today. Oh, what? She just got out, and she started an Instagram. How did... Or what? Twitter. Or Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No! She has a Twitter now and an Instagram. No, how did I... Me, how do you know that before me? You're not even on Cool Kids Internet. Well, welcome to the Cool... Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, because I'm better at Twitter than you is really the reason. This is true. This is true. Um, if she had started an Instagram, I feel like I would have known it. She did, I'm you. Said you said Twitter. She's both. <sighs> Woof. Okay, back to Joan. Shameless self-promotion. It works. And then shit starts to get really spicy in Joan's life. Joan was known, and we'll touch on this many times from here on out, but she was known from the get-go for her competitive nature. And this competitive nature often manifested as like feuds with other actresses. In one of her first roles, she ended up kind of like in this background role. So, you know, she was silent film background dancer, self-promotion, new name. She thinks she's going to make it big. And she ends up kind of like this side character, supporting character in a movie with this woman named Norma Shearer. And Joan is like, what the fuck? Why does Norma keep getting all of these roles? And then Joan figures out that Norma was actually married to the head of the studio. What? What a coincidence. You never expect those things. Right? You never expect the person who's sleeping with the boss to get the first pick of scripts. But then you know what? It turns out they're just right there at the convenient times and then Mm. works out like that. Yeah. Just a little kitchen table policy script reading situation. There you go. And so instead of just like paying her dues and making her way into the industry... Joan kind of just like goes around loudly having this conversation repeatedly about how it's unfair that Norma gets all these roles because she's fucking the boss. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, transparency. That's one way to do it. Sure. (laughs) She makes a big deal about it. She's very dramatic. It's noted in lots of places. Obviously, Norma does not enjoy this competition from Hmm. Joan. Okay. That feud sort of simmers over a couple years, and by 1927, Joan ends up starring in her first leading lady role. <laughs> not ironically, Norma passed it up. She did not oh, want it. okay. I was going to say, not that she overcame the system. Got it. No, and I'm going to tell you why Norma passed it up. And I don't really give a shit about the role or the movie, and in a lot of ways, it's horribly ableist. But here's the plot line. Okay. Crawford appears as a skimpily, skimpily? Yes. Scantily. uh, Scantily clad? I copy-pasted and it says skimpily clad, but that's fine. I don't know who wrote whatever you originally copied, (laughs) but they were skimping out on their grammar lessons. (laughs) So she was um, a uh, underdressed young carnival assistant in this movie called The Unknown, starring Lon Chaney Sr., who played a carnival knife thrower with no arms who hoped to marry her. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> 
How to throw the knives? I don't know. I didn't watch it, but that's a plot line. With and Norma mouth? was like, no thanks. With his feet? I don't know. Joan was like, this is it. This is my big prank. I have a feeling she was like, you know what? I'll take what I can get. I feel like that's, yes. that's the approach. It's not her big breakout role. The next Wait, movie. This wasn't a breakout <laughs> success? The next movie is. It's enormously popular. And it establishes her as this up and coming it girl. And just for some perspective, F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, the great Gatsby, la la, said of her at the time. Joan Crawford is doubtless the best example of the flapper, the girl you see in smart nightclubs, gowned to the apex of sophistication, toying iced glasses with a remote, faintly bitter expression, dancing deliciously, laughing a great deal with wide, hurt eyes, young things with a talent for living. You had me at remote bitter. <laughs> I know. So you're telling me she's the muse for Daisy? Is that what I'm saying? Okay, hearing? okay. Um, anyway, so she made a name for herself. She's well enough known that F. Scott Fitzgerald has something to say about her. Got it. After just two movies. Were they ever together or did they know each other in real life? I have no idea. Okay, I don't got know. it. In the late 1920s, so she's at this point performing for a few years, studios start making the transition to talkies. And fun fact, MGM was actually the very last of the studios to transition. They hitched their wagon hard to the silent films and sort of like dragged their feet. Because of this slow transition, a lot of these previously hot ticket silent film actors don't want to make the transition. There's a a bunch of reasons, but basically, you know, it's a totally different vibe. They have no experience doing it. They have just a totally different skill set. Some of them had really shitty voices yeah. that didn't translate well. From the uh, from the last episode, um, Mr. Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, uh, one of his first movies with all the planes, mm-hmm. they had the whole cast and everything lined up. They started filming, and then they decided right before they like went into heavy production that they were going to make it a talkie. Oh, and then all of a sudden, the lead actress. Uh, she had this heavy Norwegian accent and you couldn't understand what she was saying. That was actually a big, huge thing. There yeah. were so many Scandinavian actresses yes, that they had this, this very big accent. You couldn't understand anything. No. And yeah, so he had to replace her in his movie. And it happened all over the place. Joan had no accent. She had a very slight Southern draw, but she worked with a uh, dialection. Is that the word? Dialect coach. Dialect coach to get that out. And so she... Essentially, it was like, I am going to be the major star of the talkies, especially for MGM. None of these other actresses can do it. None of them will be doing it. Around the same time, Joan marries her first husband. And, you know, there might have been some love involved, but it was a pretty strategic marriage on her part. Was he a studio head? So she married Douglas Fairbanks Jr., whose family was Hollywood royalty. Douglas... Fairbanks Sr., major producer, major connections. Hey, you know what? Uh, Call that strategic acquisitions. (laughs) Yeah. She saw the playbook and she was like, I can do that. Okay. Okay. Right? So uh, Don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah. She normally shares her way into this role. You know, she's not fucking the boss. She's fucking the boss's kid who was a teenager. Oh, shit. (laughs) What? So he was like 19 and she was only, I don't know, 23, 24. But still, she saw the card. She played him. After this, she quickly becomes one of the most successful and sought-after actresses. It's the late 20s, early 30s. She's young. She's beautiful. She's got connections. 1930, she ends up making five movies for MGM. Three of them, she's starring with Clark Gable. And he was the premier superstar of superstars of the time. Yes. So if you were across from Clark Gable... You were the Angelina Jolie. This is a Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie matchup. Mr. and Mrs. Smith of 1930. This is a Donald Glover and Phoebe Walters Bridge. <laughs> Walters Bridge? Yeah, Waller, Waller, Waller Bridge. Bridges. Waller, Waller Bridges, I think. This is a Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller Bridges matchup <laughs> of the day. For folks who don't know, those two are remaking the like 2005 classic Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yeah, sorry. So just to, this digression, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which was a Brad and Angelina film, is now... Not that long ago. No, is now Donald Glover from Atlanta and Community and Childish Gambino fame and Phoebe Waller-Bridge of like 
the writer of uh, Killing Eve and like Fleabag. It's so good. It's so good. I mean, it couldn't be a more random but it's perfect. So pairing. fucking weird. Oh my god, <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's gonna be awesome. Anyway, so yes, this is them: Clark Gable, Joan Crawford. As you can imagine, one thing leads to another. Joan and Clark strike up a decades-long affair. He doesn't even own a movie studio. He doesn't, no. And they don't even hide it. Like, their spouses know. Everybody knows. And it goes on, like I said, for decades, on and off. Both of them were married. Uh, By then, though, it's, you know, 1930. She's been married a couple years. She does not give a fuck. She... Her marriage to Douglas is falling apart. Yeah, well, I mean, like, if she married him to, like, get into the business, once you're, you know, a star, you don't really need that anymore. No, and the reason that she cited in the divorce papers was that there was, like, grievous mental harm caused by his jealousy and controlling temper. Like, yeah, you're fucking Clark Gable. He's jealous. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, I buy that. It takes a few years. By 1933, they're divorced. She says the thing out loud that you shouldn't say if you're not looking for a relationship, which is, I'm not looking for a relationship right now. And then... Famous last words. Yeah. In the very next movie she stars in, within a few months, she meets her second husband. Hmm. They get married within a year. Spoiler, it doesn't end well. Okay, okay. Variety of reasons. One of them was that Joan really wanted children. And she and her second husband had a number of miscarriages. Very hard on Joan. She sort of slunk into a depression. It was she was a very weary time for her. And instead of, you know, comforting his wife, trying to be an emotional support for her during this very trying time, her husband becomes a raging abusive alcoholic who physically abuses her. And by 1939, She's like, okay, I'm done. I I actually don't want to be beat because I can't bear your children. Yeah, yikes. In the scope of her life at the time, this was kind of insult to injury. So the late 30s were not great for Joan as an actress. In the mid-30s, she was considered the number one Hollywood star. Like she was on like the cover of Time magazine or whatever as the, the number one starlet. By the late 30s, her ticket sales for movies were inconsistent. And so in 1938, Crawford, along with Greta Garbo, Norma Shearer, Louise Rayner, John Barrymore, Catherine Hepburn, Fred Astaire, Dolores Del Rio, and a handful of others, all of them were dubbed, quote, box office poison in an open letter in the independent film journal. Yikes. And this list (laughs) was submitted by Harry Brandt, who was the president of the Independent Theater Owners Association of America. He argued that all of these actors were being paid more money than they deserved. Their ticket sales didn't match up, and so they were a liability. They were no longer an asset, and they were washed up, and studios should stop using them. Yikes. And in response, these actors and actresses (laughs) got together and started World War II. Right. I mean, about, except that it totally crashed and burned most of their careers. Only a few of them ever recovered. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. Like this one open letter calling them out made them not salvageable employees for That's a number of studios. rough. Obviously, this took a toll on Joan's career. And for many years after this, Joan... The, the crazy part to me about that just is because if today with... Actors as like free agents. Mm-hmm. Somebody is in a bunch of flops in a row. Mm-hmm. Then you're like, oh, maybe there's something about their acting or the types of projects that they are attracted to. Does it, you know, doesn't make them very good. But at the time, because these people are like still mostly signed to studios, they're like forced to work on certain movies with certain writing right. and like certain directors that like they don't have the control over. No. Like it's actually somebody else's movie once they sign the contracts. Yeah, the fact that they would, like, pin it on the actors and actresses is just wild to me. Right. Instead of saying, like, hey, movie studios, you're hoarding a lot of wealth and giving it to celebrities instead of distributing it to these independent theaters that are, like, begging you for some more capital. Yeah, they're like, not enough people show up. It's it's the movie stars. Interesting. Takes a toll on Joan's career. For decades after this, 
she has to endure this like repetitive trope that she is quote unquote making a comeback. She makes a comeback like six or seven times. <laughs> Don't she call wins it a Academy comeback. Awards after this. Okay, okay. Still comeback, right? And like you said, like every actor has this hit or miss time period in their life. People make movies just for money. Some of them are passion projects. There's a whole gamut of things. Yeah, like uh, Air Bud 3, for example. <laughs> just a passion project. The director was like, this needs to be in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his dog wouldn't stop pestering him. He was like, let's get back into the studio. You know what? And they did it for the love of the game. <laughs> so for the love of the game, this is happening to Joan. Yes. Crumbling marriage, career stalls, divorce. And so she does... What everyone who's experiencing multiple life crises does. Adopts a child. Oh, I thought you were going to say got bangs. <laughs> okay, some of us don't get bangs. Some of us just dye our hair. Don't be rude. Okay. And Take all types. If we could get piercings or tattoos safely right now, some <laughs> of us would be doing that as well. Yes. Worse than bangs, she adopts a child illegally. Oh, yeah, it's not mm-hmm. even an animal. A child. <laughs> Yeah, so she adopts her first child, Christina, through this very suspect and likely criminal channel. Child kidnapping ring. Very close to that. Yikes. Joan is single. It's 1940. She wants a baby. She can't, as a single woman, adopt a child in California. So she goes to Las Vegas and she works with a quote-unquote agency. To adopt a child off the streets. Through which she adopts her daughter, Christina. Side note, she originally names the daughter Joan after herself. And then within a few months is like, no, I hate the name Joan. Why did I do this? Exactly. (laughs) Renames her Christina. Almost immediately after adopting her child, she meets Philip Terry. And this is the man who would very quickly become her third husband. Oh, okay. Okay. After just six months, they marry. Together, they decide to adopt a son. They adopt a son. But after a few weeks, the birth mother comes back. And reclaims her child. Devastates Joan. They eventually end up adopting another son. They name this child Philip Terry Jr. At first. But then her marriage to Philip Terry Sr. inevitably implodes. Yikes. (laughs) And Joan changes the child's name to Christopher. (laughs) Man, real flip-flop situation here. Right. So she had a Joan Jr. and a Philip Jr. And now she has a Christina and And a a Christopher. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just going back to defaults like that. Right. Little Christ Christ situation happening Mm -hmm. here. It's a lot to unpack. Around this time, her contract with MGM mutually ends. They both agree, we're not going to finish out these movies, but you can buy me out. They buy her out for $100,000. Not bad. Not bad for the 1940s. Joan, who's now in her early 40s, herself, moves to Warner Brothers Studios. It's there that she makes her second breakout role, comeback style. Tokyo Drift. Yes. (laughs) Fast and Furious 2. In a movie called Mildred Pierce. A lot of contention around this piece. The director essentially wants anybody but her. He says, why would I work with this washed up has-been? But she campaigns. She's like, I want to be in this movie. They fucking hate each other. Okay, okay. They do it. They make the movie Academy Awards. Wow. Brilliant. She's back on top. She's freshly divorced. She decides, once again, she wants more children. This time, she was like two for one, adopts twins, Cindy and Kathy, from the now-disgraced Tennessee Children's Home Society which was an actual, literal human trafficking operation for which the owners and operators were criminally prosecuted. Wait, what? They actually were like baby snatchers. Yes. What the fuck? So Jane has four children from suspicious means, real dicey. Yeah, that's Not great. What? Very bad. Let's just recap right now. Sort of... Think back and look into the future. At this moment in time, currently present day, Joan is known for a few things. The first, she's a Hollywood starlet. The second, wire hangers. The third, brutal feuds. Wait, wire hangers? So we've gotten through the Hollywood starlet. Let's get to the wire hangers bit. A year after her death, Joan's daughter, Christina, 
releases a tell-all book called Mommy Dearest. And it is about her childhood with Joan Crawford as her mother. This book was later made into this sort of campy, salacious movie with Faye Dunaway as the lead. During her life, Joan carefully curated her public image to make it seem like she was this really healthy and devoted mother who took in all of these children from, you know, mothers who couldn't care for them. And she had all these means. She was going to give them everything. But behind the scenes, Christina, which was later corroborated by her brother Christopher, but disputed by the twins, alleges that Joan was an alcoholic who relentlessly abused them. Yikes. So some of the things that she was allegedly doing to her children during the 40s and 50s include waking them up in the middle of the night and beating them with wire hangers because in their house, quote, they don't use wire hangers. Famous scene from the movie Mommy Dearest. Yeah, okay. Uh, this this part, the that scene from the movie... I didn't realize it was Joan Crawford, but that's part that I have heard of. She would also make her children pose with a pile of Christmas presents, as tall as the children were, and then she would only allow them to select one before giving the rest away to charity, which she would publicly document to make it seem like she was charitable, in addition to being a loving, devoted mother who gave her children a lot of stuff. Yikes. That's like uh, the worst type of Instagram parent. I know! Yes. Right. I'm telling you, Influencer 101. She would wake up her children in the middle of the night and force them to clean the house. Joan was a notorious germaphobe who wrapped really unnecessary things in her home in plastic and, like, obsessively had the place cleaned. Tangentially, some of the people who were intimate with Joan would later speak out about how part of her ritual of seduction included bathing and, like, powdering them and then, like, putting cologne on them and talking about how clean they were. Like, that's her thing. We all have a thing. That's her thing. Got it. But she would wake up her kids, make them clean the house. She would starve her children if they complained about food and um, a whole bunch of other really terrible things that should not happen to children. The book also insinuates that the untimely death of Joan's fourth and final husband occurred under suspicious circumstances. So in 1955, a decade after her third husband divorce, Joan married an executive of Pepsi-Cola. Oh, okay. He would later go on to become the chair of the board. And within just three years of their marriage, a few months of him becoming the the chairman of the board, he quote, had a heart attack and fell down some stairs. Wait, both? <laughs> mm-hmm. And died. That's really unfortunate timing. It's really unfortunate timing, right? And Joan, at the time, assumed that she would take over as chairman of the board of PepsiCo. Wait, really? Right. I, I guess that was a thing. Like, I guess. I don't know. The rest of the board was like, no, thank you. You have no business acumen. Like, no, this man had been with the company for like 30 years. You are an actress. And yeah, so it, wait, what? I know. How I did know. she get to there? She wanted it. Oh, See, okay. want, take. That was Joan's motto. I mean, it worked for a lot of other things, but uh, apparently not for corporate takeovers. Again, that M&A, that like acquisition, mergers and acquisition side of her just took it a step too far. Well, you think, except when the board told her no, Joan called up the number one gossip columnist and had her print the story. Pepsi very suddenly had a change of heart. So there she is, Hollywood actress, in her 50s, child abuser, PepsiCo board chair. Wait, she gets the board chairmanship? She does. No way! And she stays in the role for 15 years. What the fuck? I know. Anyway. How did she pull that off? The audacity. In some ways, I admire it a lot. In some ways, it seems like a nightmare. Like, can you imagine? I don't know. um, Just someone unqualified who was married to an executive coming in and being like, this is mine now. I'll have it. Thank you. Yeah. And then (laughs) gets it and then keeps it. Keeps it. It's it's very impressive. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was not all, you know, obviously glamour behind the scenes. But all of that that I just mentioned, except for the gossip column was kept 
hidden until her death. Fortunately, though, there was enough drama in front of the curtain to keep the tabloids and gossip columns happy during her life. And the most common topic, so we've gotten Hollywood starlet, wire hangers, now we're talking feuds. Her most famous of all, a feud with Betty Davis. It began back in the 30s, but like petty fucking feuds do, it lingered for 30 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you have any 30-year-old feuds? Uh, not yet. Mm. I'm working on them. I've got like a 15-year-old one. Okay, okay. Right? And nursing it. <laughs> Keep it, it strong every few years. Revisit it. <laughs> That's Poke good. Poke it, prod it. Yeah. Show up looking good at a class reunion. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so Joan does this for like three decades. There you go. By the 1960s, this feud with Betty Davis that started with an insult at the Oscars in 1936 hits a fever pitch. Neither actress at this point are young bombshells that they once were, but they're both still very bankable and talented actresses. Joan recognizes this, and as such, this drive in Joan (laughs) made it so that she had to be the quote-unquote winner of like whatever made-up competition she had orchestrated in her mind. In her own head, exactly. Right. 1962, Joan, for the very first time, is cast alongside Betty in this movie called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Plotline, it's a psychological thriller. There's an aging Hollywood starlet, that's Joan, who is scared of her mentally ill sister, that's Betty. Utmost professionals, they get along fine on set. Everybody talks about how they were very well behaved when the cameras were rolling. But behind the scenes, shit escalates real quick. The movie ends up being a huge hit. It recoups all of its losses within 11 days of opening. And that was a big deal back then. That was, like, huge, right? Especially for women who are in their 50s and 60s Okay. To so, lead, so right? despite the feud, they seem to work together and produce a, a massively successful film. Right. Comes time for Oscar season. And the unspeakable happens. Betty, not Joan, is nominated for an Academy Award for this movie. Wait, wasn't Joan the star? They were co-stars, but I, I imagine, yeah. She was like the lead. Mm-hmm. Joan Yikes. is the aging Hollywood starlet in the movie, and Betty is the... <laughs> the sister, yeah. The mentally ill sister. The Oscars happen on the West Coast. L.A., right? Mm-hmm. Always have, I guess always will. Who knows? Until California breaks off, falls off into the ocean, I guess that's where it's going to be. Exactly. But for some reason, all the other actresses that were nominated in that category with Betty Davis... We're living on the East Coast at the time. So Jane does what every, you know, considerate, hospitable actress does at the time. And she calls them up. She's like, hey, yo, I live in L.A. What a coincidence. If you win, I would love to accept it for you. Would you like that? And all of the other actresses are like, yeah, cool, I guess. <laughs> like, Sure. Wow. They're not showing up for the Oscars. Okay. I guess not. Maybe they had other things going on. It was like Catherine Hepburn and Bancroft. There was like a whole host of like very, very big names. Okay. But for some reason, they were unwilling or unable to make it out to the West Coast for the ceremony. Got sure. it. And Bancroft ended up winning. So Joan Crawford, on her behalf, walks out onto the stage, walks out onto the stage, accepts the award, and gives this big speech thanking the Academy right in front of Betty Davis, who's just a few feet away. (laughs) So even though they were both in the successful film, and Betty was the one that got the nomination, of course, Joan finds a way to be up on stage accepting the award. Right. So at one point, this feud involves Joan mailing a live skunk, or like having it delivered to Betty's house. Joan refuses to do press for their shared movie. Like, the movie comes out, it's big success, but you still have like a junket. Right? Sure, yeah. Go do all the interviews and everything. Yeah, do the press. And instead of doing the, like, rotation of press with her co-stars, Joan offers up these exclusive one-on-one high-profile uh, interviews that just, like, exclusive. Only this person gets it. And so they're like, well, fuck the rest of the cast. I'm going to Joan's apartment, and I'm going to get this interview. Yes. So she does this sort of shit. This entire time, the whole time that this movie is going on. Just petty as can be. Right. If if, it, if they were on TikTok, they would end up on messy TikTok at this point. They they would be, what's the song? Um, driveway? 
Oh, yeah, they'd be like uh, Olivia, whatever, and mm-hmm. Sabrina Carpenter. Yes, yes. Uh, driver's license, skin. Yeah, that's that's right. For our Gen Z listeners, that's the context <laughs> you need right now. And um, Joan Crawford is Olivia, whatever her name is. Yeah, Nunzi something. I don't know. No, no, no. No, no. Uh, the song is a banger, though. It's getting stuck <laughs> in your head. Back to Joan. She goes on to star in a few more movies. Mid-60s, late-60s. Her daughter, at this point, has been shoved into the Hollywood spotlight. Joan essentially forced Christina to become an actress. And in 1968, Christina, who at this point is 29, is set to star on this recurring show, this television show. But at the last minute, one of her ovaries ruptures and requires emergency surgery and, like, home rest for multiple weeks. Guys, that sounds painful. You know who Joan doesn't call? Who? Christina. You know who she does call? The show's producers. What? And so, that's right. Joan takes her 29-year-old daughter's recurring role on a TV show. No. (laughs) While her daughter's in the hospital, she doesn't call her. She calls the producers and swoops in and takes the role? As a 60-year-old woman. What? (laughs) That's stone fucking cold right there. Stone cold. But also, what the fuck, producers? How are you changing the script that much? Only one thing to say to that. That's showbiz, baby. <laughs> it's like that episode of The Office where Jim and Pam are watching the movie with Jack Black. Uh, and, and, the, and the old woman who's like in the died. stair. Oh, no. Chair. It's her name. Oh, yeah. The actress. Yes. Um and she's like, you know, at that point, like 85. Yes. And it's supposed to be Nicole Kidman, who is like Jack Black's age. But Nicole Kidman drops out. So they recast with this older woman and nobody says anything. <laughs> yes. Just like that. So she does that, you know, for a couple months. She films the first season. By the way, when you were giving your office comparison mm-hmm. to what her swooping in her daughter's That's for millennials, like, not yeah. Gen Z. I thought, I honestly thought you were going to be like, it's like Asian Jim. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. When nobody notices when they play that prank on, on Dwight. Yes. Similar. Same premise. She has a few more roles into the 70s. Not that many. In 1973, she is actually photographed at an event. Those pictures end up in the newspaper. And she says, if that's how I look, then you won't see me again. And after that, she was never seen in public again. Wow. That's commitment. <laughs> I mean, have you learned nothing? This woman is committed. That's true. She walked. She like walked in and been like, "Hey, my husband had this job and he died, so it's mine now." <laughs> yeah. Um, which, yeah, you got that kind of energy. Yeah, I, I could see. I could see commitment to not being photographed. Strangely, after that, she had this very late in life conversion to Christian Science. Like she was really drunk. And taking antibiotics, and it made her pass out, and she hit her head. And when she woke up, she decided to stop drinking and become a Christian scientist. That is not the the late twist or chapter <laughs> I was expecting, honestly. When she goes hard, she goes hard. May 6, 1977, she gives away her beloved Shih Tzu. She says to a friend, I'm too weak and frail to take care of this dog. Four days later, she dies. She left both Christina and Christopher out of their will because, quote, they know why. Oh, damn. And that's kind of the end of the story. Yikes. (laughs) A year after her death, that Mommy Dearest book was published, a few years later in the movie. But other than that, it was like a fizzling out, this quiet end to a sort of bombastic and over-the-top life. Didn't like some photos in the newspaper. Shady dips out. Never sees her again. Dead. So... For all of the philandering, the antagonizing, the child abuse, and the feuding, Joan Crawford is not my hero. Yeah, again, you you glazed over the child trafficking there, too, which was also a big part of that. My bad. Yeah. You're um, right. You're right. Yeah, that's, uh, if you've got that kind of audacity, and you've got to respect it, mm-hmm. uh... Wish you would have channeled it in a different direction, maybe. <laughs> a little bit less pettiness to everyone you worked with and your children, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe a little more good things in the world. 
Yeah, she gave to a bunch of charities. I mean, one of the things that I left out of this story that I want to make a point to to point out is that Joan Crawford is often painted as this woman who sort of like slept her way to the top. And she did. She slept with a ton of influential people openly. And it was not a secret. Um, there was one director who got caught sleeping with her and his wife said, like, I mean, I can't hold it against him. What man would pass up the chance to sleep with Joan Crawford. Okay, okay. But I recently saw this tweet that made me think of Joan that said, why do we keep referring to it as women sleeping their way to the top instead of men withholding capital and promotions until they get what they want? Yeah, men trading trading access and capital for sex, right? Yeah. Like that's that's yeah. what's happening. Totally. So I'm leaving that out of the story because she did what she wanted with her body with whom she wanted. At times, it was uh, probably unethical and immoral yep, in a yep. lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But the, like, sleeping with a director to get a role, like, okay, consensual adults doing their thing. I mean, not really. That's, like, ridiculously unethical. I mean, there's on, a huge power dynamic. Yeah, you're right. You're especially right, from, right. from the perspective of the people who actually have the roles to give, right? You're the right. The fact that they are giving right. them based on that. For her... I think there's something to be said that, like, if she is sitting there struggling as an unknown actress and sees that this is the way the game is played and chooses to play this game from a position of less power, then, like, it, you, you can say that, you know, it's her prerogative and she was successful and she did what she had to, for sure. Um, but, yeah, definitely doesn't... The power dynamic does not go both ways. That's fair. But our power dynamic goes both ways. <laughs> if you believe you have any power in this relationship, which is, oh, think again. <laughs> so if people would like to listen to more of our power dynamic, where can they find us? Yes, they can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Mm-hmm. At Your Heroes Pod or meetyourheroespodcast.com. They can write us a review. Please, on Apple Podcasts, if you may, tell your friends and share. Share. Share widely. It would be really great. Um, If you want stickers, swag, we have a bunch of that. We have a bunch of stamps. Just write us a review, screenshot it. Um, that would be fantastic. Or, you know what? You can actually just email us at this point. Say, hey, I want a sticker. And if you're willing to put a sticker on your water bottle, I'm willing to spend 55 cents to send it to you. There we go. It's a fair trade. But until next week. Until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.